Hi, this is Kenny Jones from the Faces, the Small Faces, and Polly the Who as well. And you're listening to Follow Your Dream podcast by Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. But I still Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Roger Earl, founding member and drummer of Foghat, the English rock band. Foghat was formed in 1971 when Roger and his bandmate left Savoy Brown to start a band of their own. Foghat has earned eight gold records, one platinum record, and one double platinum record. How about that? Their music has been featured in the video game Guitar Hero 3 and in the movie Dazed and Confused. And they're still out there doing it as they have a new album out right now called Sonic Mojo, their 17th studio album, and they're touring behind it. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Roger and I are going to do a song fest where we're going to play a little bit of a handful of their best works. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guests. And in this instance, I have chosen the song Waiting For Me from Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. It's an album that I put out last year. Why? Well, Foghat is known for playing boogie music. And Waiting For Me has got that 60s boogie thing going. So I thought that it fit. So Roger Earl, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Nice to be here. Nice to be here. Roger, you've been doing it for so long. Okay, I read something in your bio that I have to ask you about. I like to pick out little things in bios that nobody else thinks about, okay? And what I picked out was that, did you actually audition for Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I probably came in fifth or sixth. But to be fair, I think Jimmy picked the right one. He really did pick the right drummer. Actually, the story behind that was um, when I was about 17 or 18, Chaz Chandler was putting a band together. I, was, I lived in southwest London, Halzo, Twickenham, that area. And I got the job playing in this band. We didn't actually go out and play anywhere. We played together for a couple of months. I guess Chaz Chandler got busy. I was a commercial artist up in London. That was my day job. And he called me up at work one day and said, look, um, hi, Rog, uh, there's this guy coming over from the States. You may have heard of him. Everybody was talking about Jimi Hendrix at the time. All the all the guitar players in London, Jeff Beck, uh, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, they're all going on about him. He said, would you like to come and audition? I said, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be, I was actually in a band, but it had actually slowed down a bit. It was a three-piece, myself, Dave Hutchins, the bass player, 
and Ray Dorsett, who eventually became the lead, the lead singer with Mungo Jerry, with my brother. Anyway, I did the audition. I actually, I went, it was a club just off a of Piccadilly Circus called Birdland, I think. And uh, it was raining, as usual. We were lining up outside. It was like about midday, 12, 1 o'clock. And Jimi Hendrix come, walks up to me and starts telling me about some songs he'd written the night before. Anyway, they open the door. We go down. Uh, three or four drummers or so played before me. Then it was my turn. And Jimmy started playing. I had no idea what to do. It was like <laughs> he was just playing, you know, that beautiful stuff. And, you know, he had a Marshall stack. And then, as I recall, he started playing a slow blues. And I sort of went, ah, I could do that. That one you got. Yeah. And then he did um, like a, a Chuck Berry kind of, it might have been Johnny Be Good Eyes, actually. And then he did, I think it was a Bob Dylan song. He was very generous with his time. I probably got about half an hour, 40 minutes. But I was, what was I was 18 at the time, 19 maybe. He was fantastic. And uh, obviously I didn't get the job. But I did get a chance to sit in with him in a couple of places. When I came to the States in 69 with Savoy Brown, I sat in uh, a club in Manhattan. I think it was Steve Paul scene. And then out in L.A. somewhere, there was a, a jam going on. And I think Eric Burden was actually singing at the time. And a bunch of people like were moving in and out of the stage, and I got to play a song with him there. He was absolutely a, an incredible musician. He changed the whole world, the way the world looks and views guitar players. The interesting thing that I got from listening to Jimi Hendrix, or I think I, it's been talked about, He's based like nearly all his songs were based in like an R and B kind of riff, an attitude. It was always there was always a rhythm there. I mean, if you could follow it, yeah. And he just took it to another place. Um, and I think you know, once or twice in a lifetime, somebody such as he comes along and changes the whole world and puts it on its head and says, "Here's something special for you, lot." Yeah, you're right about that. Beautiful guy too. I have to tell you. My little vignette to add on to your story. I grew up in New York City, and there was a club in Greenwich Village. There still is called the Cafe Wa. Yeah, right. And I used to go down to the Cafe Wa. I'm a little bit younger than you, and I remember distinctly seeing a singer with a backing band, and they had this left-handed guitarist. That's what I remembered. And of course, that was Hendrix. I didn't know it was Hendrix. He went back to England, as you said, with Chaz Chandler, comes back as Jimi Hendrix. And as soon as I saw him, I said, wait a minute, that's that left-handed guitarist that I saw at the Cafe Wa. Yeah, he was um he was something else. It was um it was a time of magic with Jimmy, wasn't it? It was totally a time of magic. But that whole era was a time of magic. As I mentioned to you before we started this, I came of age musically in that whole British invasion era. And what I find so interesting, because I've spoken to so many English musicians, and what you guys did, you took the blues, which really was underrepresented, not really listened to in the United States. You brought it back to England. You redid it. You made it your own. And you gave it back to us. And then we discovered the blues again. Yeah, you know, 
I've said this before, but it's the truth as far as I'm concerned. It has a real ring of truth. This land that is my adopted home, America, you know, you've got when the Africans were dragged here, the folks from Europe, uh, Spain, France, England brought their melodies and, 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 and stuff. And we had this wonderful amalgamation of music and taste. I mean, without the the blues started it. Then we got jazz, bebop, rock and roll, country, hillbilly music, and of course gospel music. Yep. And it's this wonderful meeting of all those different cultures that has become American music. And to this day, America gives music to the world. And I think out of everything that this land is and has given to the world, that is like something truly special and unique. There's no other land in the world that has that. Uh, even to this day, I think um, countries all over the world look towards American musicians and the music that comes from this land. You're right, the English sort of grabbed hold of it. Well, we speak a similar language. <laughs> similar. <laughs> I, I remember growing up, I mean, you know, the first music I listened, actually my parents, it was always music in, in our household. My parents, uh, big band music, Peter, Les Paul and Mary Ford, that was a biggie in my house. Mum and dad loved that. And then, of course, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard. Then I discovered Muddy Waters. Actually, Muddy Waters at the Newport Jazz Festival, 1960, 61, I think it was. That was the record that changed my life. I sat down and listened to that, and I said, Francis Clay was the drummer. I I could never quite play like that, but I played along to that record. I had two six-inch speakers either side of my head in my dad's woodworking shed that was soundproof, and that's how I learned to play. And, of course, without Chuck Berry, we'd all be out of work, certainly me and the Stones. You bet. Let me ask you this. I mean, all the English guys have said to me that the goal you know, the shining place on the hill was to get to America. Did you feel the same way? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt like I'd come home. There's a quick story. When I was seven or eight years old, I told my older brother, Colin, he was four years older than me. I said, I'm, I'm going to run away to America. I'm going to stow away on a ship. <laughs> when I was about eight, one day I packed a bag and I said, I'm going to stow away. And he went, Psh. That was just stupid. <laughs> but eventually, I got to stow away on a jet airliner plane with Savoy Brown. First time I came here was 1969. And it was, yeah, it was a magical time. And I remember we had a first couple of shows that were a little strange for us. Because in England, we have a term that's called taking coals to Newcastle. Right. Because that's where they dig it up. So it was kind of like that coming here as a Savoy Brown blues band. But one of the first shows I remember playing in Boston, uh, Savoy Brown is opening up. The Jay Giles band is on next. Wow. And then headlining the show was Buddy Guy. Mm. Now, we sat and listened to the Jay Giles band and went, well, we got a long way to go. <laughs> then Buddy Guy comes on and turns his magic on. And actually, I've met Buddy a number of times since then. A uh, beautiful man, a most incredible guitar player and performer. And uh, we all went, 
we have a long way to go. But the following day after that show in Boston, we played the Boston Tea Party. That was right. Yes. And uh, Jay Giles and um, Peter Wolf came over to the hotel and they took Lonesome Dave and uh, and Kim Simmons out to the local record stores in Boston. Now, eventually, later on, we did a bunch of shows with the Jay Giles band, but they were really cool. Great band. And it, that was my introduction to america we did a few more gigs but by the time we got to detroit we'd um gained some of our confidence back then i remember playing in detroit we did three encores and we all went <laughs> uh detroit is a great city it's a rock and roll town you know you mentioned the boston tea party and you're the first guy that i've had on this podcast that remembers that place and mentioned it it was right across the street from Fenway Park, which is where the Boston Red Sox play. Yeah. And that was the place in Boston in the 1960s. I saw so many bands that played there. Did you play the Fillmore East or the Fillmore West as well? Yeah, Fillmore East, Fillmore West, uh, Bill Graham. Uh, that was a that was a man who uh he was he was fantastic. He always certainly as far as we were concerned, treated us great. And uh, he would uh, come into the dressing room. And actually, when once we formed Fog Hat and come back over, came back over here, we did some shows with Bill. And it was. And what did he say? He said, "I think Fog Hat like to play more than they like to breathe." But Bill Graham was uh, a fantastic promoter, a, a great promoter as well. He was very fair with his bands. We got paid. He treated us like little princes. You know, like the food and took care of us, and like you, you guys, he come in and say hello. You, you need anything? You guys okay? Everything's good. So, uh, yeah, Bill Graham was um, a rare man, a rare man amongst promoters, and uh, yeah, he was some, he was somebody else. That's nice to hear. You know, the other thing about Bill Graham that I've mentioned before that I always loved, he put together shows that were not these homogenous shows where everybody played the same kind of thing. I mean, the first time I ever went to the Fillmore, he had Miles Davis opening for The Who. Can you imagine that? But it was a fantastic idea. Yeah, it was. It, um, uh, Voices of Harlem, um, you know, Savoy Brown and somebody else. Uh, it was He was fantastic like that. And, and I think the real beauty of that, he opened up people's ears. Yes. Yes. And eyes to all the music out there. He was a musical impresario in the finest sense of the word. He brought people together. He brought music together. Yeah. Great American. You're absolutely right. Because, look, a Miles Davis audience probably doesn't know anything at back then about The Who and vice versa. But they each got to experience an incredible band with a different genre. And it just, it's like one plus one equals three. But they don't do that anymore, do they? No. And you're right. They they try and put bands together that people are able to, like, associate with it, I guess. I love playing, like, you know, like this past summer, we played with ZZ Top, um, a bunch of bands from, like, our era. And it's always fun. ZZ Top's one of my favorite bands. Uh, it's, it's uh, yeah. They try to put like bands together, but I don't know that that's such a bad thing because if you put Miles Davis, not Miles Davis, but 
some somebody nobody similar to Miles Davis, Roger. He was another one that was on his own. But um, in different kinds of bands together, it happens, you know, like uh, jazz festivals, like in New Orleans, you'll hear a bunch of different bands. But no, Bill Graham was, maybe it was also the time, you know, like, the you know, in the 60s and early 70s, that was a time for change. And maybe people were ready to listen to different music. I think people were hungry, actually. I think you're right about that. All right. You've been doing this thing with Foghat forever, okay? I mean, from the early 70s. Good for you. In fact, I, I love that little quote of yours. I'll rock until I drop, okay? What's it like to be doing this so many years later from when you started? Um, you know, it's like, careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, I was a commercial artist. I left school when I was 15 years old. My older brother was also a commercial artist. So I had an idea what I wanted to do. I could earn a living. Yeah, I was good at art and artwork. And, uh, you know, drums and cymbals are, are expensive. You don't, they don't just happen by magic. So I had to have a day job. I actually worked after school like three nights a week. And Saturday mornings I would work in a bakery. And then in the afternoon I would have my drum lessons. But it's um, – I'm one of those most fortunate of people in this world that has earned a living doing something I love. I mean, the current lineup of the band, uh, like Brian Bassett, has been with us 27 years. He's also a leading slide guitar player. He's also our engineer and producer. Uh, Scott Holt, who joined us two years ago, but he's been playing with the band and recording with us since 2014, writing songs, playing guitar, singing on some stuff. And Rodney O'Quinn is our bass player. We stole him from the Pat Travers band. This incarnation of the band is probably one of it's one where I am actually, actually, I think, you know, I, I write a lot more. I'm playing as well as I ever did because I'm inspired by the players and the musicians. And I think, you know, if you listen to like the new album, it's a bunch of songs. We're playing classic blues songs. We're, we're writing different kind of stuff, blues and jazz, rock and roll. It's also when we did the last album, we had about 10 songs that we didn't put on the record. So, uh, we were being, being very prolific in my old age. <laughs> Good for you. That's what you want to hear. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called Amazing magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable, and you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music. 
and keep on rocking. All right, this is a good segue into the Songfest portion of this interview. So right now, underneath my voice, we're playing one of the singles from the new album, which is 17th studio album. Good for you. This is called Driving On. I'll be so happy to let love begin. Having a way, couldn't get home. Now I'm ready, been too long gone. And I'm driving on. And I gotta be strong. And it won't be long. I'm driving on. Tell us about this one. This was co-written by Kim Simmons, the guitar player with Savoy Brown, the leader of Savoy Brown, who gave me my first real job when I was like 19 or 20, I think. Kim and I remained friends after we left Savoy Brown and we reconnected around 76. About 10 years ago, a manager got Savoy Brown into the same agency as we're with, Paradise Artists. And... So we started doing a lot of dates together. I would get up and sit in with Savoy Brown. Kim would come and sit in with Foghat. And uh, Kim played on our last previous studio album, Under the Influence. We played on like four songs. And after we finished, um, we finished up in Nashville, mixing it and doing the, the overdubs with Kim. And he said to me afterwards, he said, hey, Roger, I'd, I'd really like to write some songs for Foghat. I said, that will be great but you have to play on them. And he said, I would love that. Um, unfortunately, though, Kim became ill. Well, we had that the COVID night where that slowed everybody down. But Kim also became ill. About three years ago, he sent me uh, four songs. With, uh, it was like he'd singing and him playing. I think it was just like to a click track. But it was the start of something. And when it came time for us to start recording here, Kim was ill and he couldn't really play very well but um i think we did a good job on the songs and this is like um driving on it's about a song you know you're on the road and you want to get home because you want to see your loved one <laughs> and it's actually uh when we started fleshing it out and, and how to play it myself and scott holt it was like a light bulb going off we said Let's channel Slim Harpo. <laughs> so that, that's sort of where it comes. Others will say it's ZZ Top, and that's fine as well. I don't mind being associated with ZZ Top whatsoever. But it's, uh, yeah, it's like uh, that jazz blues kind of clickety clack, clickety clack. You know, it's, it's basically a, a jazz riff. But I'm playing on the rim of the snare drum. I like that clickety clack, clickety clack. Yeah. You find when you guys are out there playing and touring that the audience is receptive to the new stuff or do they just want to hear the big hits? Um, well, I think they want to hit. <laughs> Sometimes we'll start playing and um, some, somebody will shout out, slow ride. It's like, now, come on. <laughs> it's like, you know, well, I won't make sort of um, connotations to having sex or, you know, like, it being over a little too quick but that that's sort of what it is you know playing slow ride straight away no you can't do that that comes at the end of the show um <laughs> in fact 
Normally we do about an hour and 15 minutes. That's what most promoters ask us to do. But at the point now, we're up to about an, hundred, hundred and, an hour and 45 minutes. Um, we've added three songs from the new album. And yeah, and to answer your question, the fans have been terrific, actually. Um, we've actually filmed for promos those three songs from film, from us playing live. So, yeah, it's working. It's working real well. I think, you know, um, we, we have an idea what our fans like and also... Basically, it's what we like. We're musicians are inherently selfish. We play what we like. There you go. And what we love. Well, listen, you got to play some of the hits because they demand it. And you know what? I am going to play now, Slow Ride, because, you know, that's one of the songs you guys are known for. And, you know, I looked this up the other day. I don't even know if you know this. Do you know how many YouTube views you've got for that song? Millions. <laughs> you're not You're not going to believe this. 43 million. Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're almost in Taylor Swift territory. Okay? <laughs> uh, she gets a bit of a bad rap. We have a, a, a young woman who does our merchandise for us. She's 30 and she's a huge Taylor Swift fan. And she loves it. Other people, I keep reading this strange stuff. I'm, I'm not familiar with any of her music. But, you know, when somebody becomes a giant, music is always changing. Every generation should have their music. If it, it remained the same, I don't think that's a healthy way to be. Taylor Swift is a monster at the moment. Um, and whether you like her or not, you can't deny when somebody has that degree of success. You know, you can't take it away from her or what the young people want, you know. No, you're right. She is at a different level from everybody else. And, you know, good for them. Good, good for her and good for her audience. All right. I want to do one more song here. You guys do a version of a Willie Dixon song. I just want to make love to you. I always love that one. The Stones did a version of it. I'm sure plenty of other groups did a version of it. Tell me about your version. Actually, um, when Dave and I were in Savoy Brown, sometimes Kim wouldn't would get to the sound check later. Myself and Dave would play that version. You know, the guitar riff and that 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 that, that is kind of like a bluesy. It's almost like a John Lee Hooker riff, but played by Dave and or Rob Price. But we would jam with that kind of feel to it. And that, 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 that sort of thing. 
So that's where it came from. So when Rod Price actually joined Fogat, and he was uh, he was an incredible lead and slide guitar player, and uh, he brought some magic to the band. And also, I think the first album we did with uh, Dave Edmonds producing it, I know in my heart that our record wouldn't have been anywhere near as successful as it was without Dave Edmonds sprinkling his magic dust all over us. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's been quite a ride for you. It's not a slow ride. This is a no. long ride, okay? That's what I like about it. We have been speaking here to Roger Earl of Foghat before that Savoy Brown. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And I really want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Robert, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. And we'll get together and meet one of these days, yeah? I think that would be fantastic. And now we're going to listen to that song of mine that started off the episode. It's my song called Waiting for Me. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Thank you.